morning. It's good to see you. And uh, just put your hands up if um, you were alive in 1997. Anyone alive? Ah, it's good. Be good, wouldn't it? If we had a church filled with loads of hands up, loads of hands down, that would be good, wouldn't it? 1997, big year, 1997. Uh, New Labour came into power in 1997. Princess Diana was killed in 1997. Uh, I was just starting out, uh, about to attend Langley Park School for Boys, my first year, year seven, in my maroon blazer, ready to go to school, secondary school for the first time. But 1997, I just want to talk about an event that happened in 1997 in South Africa. And in South Africa in 1997, there was a quite an important event taking place, something called the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. I don't know if you've heard about that, but after apartheid in South Africa, so after um, that, uh, that rule of apartheid, um, the segregation, legal segregation of uh, black people and white people was ended, um, there was a healing process that needed to happen. And uh, uh, Mandela set up a healing process um, with, along with other, a load of other people. And uh, rather than there sort of being violence, rather than there being um, uh, a sort of reprisals and revenge, if you like, because there was so much hurt, so much pain after that, as you can imagine, they decided to set up something called the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. And this was a committee of hearings where people who had been hurt got the opportunity to express how they had been hurt by others. And those who had done the harming got to express how they had done the harming and seek some sort of forgiveness. And... Um, that there were amnesties given, and it was an incredible moment in South Africa's history and actually in world history because it was a moment where a, a nation was able to come to some sort of healing, and it wasn't perfect. A lot of it was controversial. A lot of people weren't happy with what happened, but when you consider what it could have been like, it was an incredible moment of healing. But there was one moment in 1997 in the Truth and Reconciliation Committee that stands out amongst all the others. And it was the moment where Desmond Tutu, who had been nominated by Nelson Mandela to be the head, the, the chair of the committee, um, he had been nominated to be the chair. I think we've got a picture up on the screen. Tom, can we jump to that? He had been designated. He was the archbishop at that point in South Africa. And he um, was to chair this, this committee. And this was the day where Winnie Mandela, Nelson's wife, um, former wife, was to stand in the trial or in the hearing and hear about some of the things that she had been involved in or that people had accused her of being involved in. So this was an incredibly high-profile figure. This was uh, put live on national TV for everybody to see because she was such an important figure. And uh, Winnie Mandela had been accused, basically, of being involved in some violence against some um, of the white people at that time who were trying to sort of keep the apartheid law. And there had been violence and, and people had been killed. And her and her bodyguards were accused of violence. And it was a really important moment because Winnie Mandela would not give it up. Winnie Mandela refused to acknowledge that anything that she had been involved in was wrong. She was refusing, basically, to admit that there had been mistakes that had been made. She would not go there. She just refused, point blank, to go there. She said, we're the victims, you're the perpetrators. That's, that was her narrative. And there was this moment, this electric moment in the trial, and it went on and on and on, and Desmond Tutu was trying to get through to her, trying to get through to her, and she would not listen. And then eventually, Tutu stopped the hearing. He stopped the hearing. He leant forward into that microphone, and he looked at Winnie Mandela and he said these words. He said this, I speak to you as somebody who loves you very, very deeply, who loves your family very deeply. There are people who want to embrace you. There are many who want to do so. If you were able to say something went wrong and say, 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my part in what went wrong. Tutu concluded, I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, please. I have not made any particular finding about what happened. You are a great person and you do not know your greatness will be, how much your greatness will be enhanced if you said sorry, things went horribly wrong. It was an electric moment. And in that moment, Winnie Mandela broke down in tears and she started to explain what had happened and talk about it. And it wasn't a complete owning up to everything. She didn't go there, but she began at least to open up the process of healing. We are in the second week of looking at these woes to the Pharisees. We're part of a big series looking at Jesus and the one, how Jesus talks to individuals in the Gospels. And today, and as we did last week, we're looking at Jesus talking to this individual, this Pharisee who invites him to his house for dinner. And we said last week that this is Jesus in Desmond Tutu mode. This is Jesus who forces himself, who pushes himself to the Pharisee because the Pharisee refuses to open up, refuses to open himself up to what Jesus has to offer. There's sort of a barrier there and Jesus wants to get in and he can't. And so we saw, we said last week, we saw the sort of Jesus, the confrontational Jesus, the Jesus who speaks woes, this word of kind of woe is you, woe is you, please, 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 I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, it will not be well for you unless, unless, unless we see Jesus in that kind of mode. And we said last week that there was a message there for us from the, for the church. If you've got your Bibles open, we're going to be in Luke chapter 11, Jesus' woes to the Pharisees. We said that there was a message there for the church and we talked about abundance, how we call to be a church of abundance and the Pharisees had mistaken obeying the law for abundance. But we also said that this week we're going to look at what the individual message is for us there. Because we can talk all we like about the church. But there's something here for us, isn't there? Jesus and the one. How would Jesus speak to us? But what I wanted you to see when I started with that, with those words from Desmond Tutu, is the love in his words. The deep, deep care and compassion in his words. This isn't Jesus who is speaking out of hatred for this Pharisee. This isn't Jesus who's speaking out of pain. This isn't Jesus who's trying to get something from the Pharisee for his own gain. This is Jesus who's speaking out of deep, deep love. And it's deep frustration. And I said last week, if you've ever met a parent who's had a child who refuses to see good for themselves, or a coach who's trying to coach a kid who doesn't see their potential, you'll understand something of what Jesus is doing here. And really what I wanted to look at this morning, I wanted to look at verse 39 to 41 and verse 44. I think we've got those verses up on the screen, Tom. Next one. Let me read it from the Bible. If you've got your Bibles open, we're in Luke chapter 11. Yeah, so Jesus says this. Jesus said to the Pharisee, the Pharisee invites Jesus to his home and Jesus says this. Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. Then the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Uh, how many of you have teenagers, teenage children? How many of you have been teenagers? Yeah, it's good. Now, there's something that happens. So I remember when I was a teenager, uh, I used to take a, a cup of hot chocolate or tea or something up to my room, and uh, I would drink the hot chocolate, tea or coffee, and uh, like good teenager I would leave the cup in my room and often I would leave the cup behind something behind maybe um, some 
I don't know, some books or some clothes or something, and uh, the mug would not be found for maybe days, maybe weeks, maybe months. And you can imagine that if you've left a sort of cup half full of hot chocolate or tea or coffee, and it's got milk in it, what that cup would look like after you found it in a couple of months' time. You're growing a new ecosystem in the mug, right? Am I, am I right? Now, I want you to imagine if you found a mug like that, and it's full of whatever you can imagine, whatever your mind goes to. And you find the mug like that, and you bring it downstairs, and you're about to wash it up, and you rinse out, um, well, you rinse out the outside of the cup. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine taking that mug, putting it into the sink, rinsing the outside of the cup, and inside the cup remains completely dirty, and then your guests come around, and you say, here, have this mug, have some tea, coffee, the shock that would meet their face as you handed them the mug. This is what Jesus is talking about. And we can imagine that when Jesus talks about this, there would have been a kind of sense of humor in what he was saying. People would have seen the ridiculousness of what he was saying. You Pharisees, you're so obsessed with washing and cleaning the outside that you forget the inner, you forget the inside. And the second image he uses is about graves. And he says, you're like unmarked graves. Essentially, he's saying to them, inside you are bones, inside you are dead. There's nothing inside you of life, and I've come to give life and life to the full. So this morning, I wanted to talk about inner and outer, and I want to say that if we want to see outward transformation, then there needs to be inward transformation. So I'm going to talk about inner and outer this morning. Is that okay? Now, uh, I was reading a book a little while ago, and the book was called Soul Keeping, Soul Keeping, and it's a book by a man called John Orberg. But at the start of that book, anybody read this book? Yeah, at the start of this book, um, there's an introduction by a guy called Henry Cloud. And the introduction goes something like this. I wanted to read to you this introduction because it completely blew me away. Before I got into the book, I read the introduction. And you know when the introduction's good, that the book is going to be good. So this is what the book said. <coughs> As John Ortberg talks about the soul, I remember a moment as if it were yesterday. He says this, I were a clinical director of a Christian psychiatric hospital and we were having the weekly meeting that we called staffing. It was the time each Wednesday when the doctors, psychologists, nurses, therapists, art and music therapists and group therapists all got together and we'd go over each patient's treatment. I loved this time each week. It was a rich time of seeing a group of dedicated professionals come together to truly care for, discuss, and plan goodness for the people they were trying to help. We celebrated patient successes, breakthroughs, and the like, and we agonized over the difficult difficulties and misfortunes. Sarah did it last night. Last night in family group, she finally told her mother that she was not going to take the job that mum had been pressuring her to take and was going to figure out her own path. It was awesome, a nurse reported. We all cheered as we experienced the fruitfulness of Sarah's hard work. Alex is having a little bit of a hard time this week. He found out that his uncle, who has held him together, is moving, and he's afraid of what's going to go, go with him. So we prayed for him. Then came the moment I will always remember. It was time to talk about Maddie. And I could tell everyone's expression changed. Fell would be a better word. Why? Maddie had developed a way of talking about herself that was off-putting, even when she was seemingly engaged with others. It seemed that something was always wrong with everyone else, with the world around her, even with us who were trying to help her. Her husband was all too familiar with being the one who was wrong as well. We all turned to Graham, her psychologist, and I asked him what was happening with Maddie. That is when he made this statement. Well, he said, it seems that Maddie still has no interest 
in having an interior life. I will never forget it. That statement said it all. Maddie had no interest in looking at her internal world, her attitudes, her hurts, her strengths, her patterns of thinking and behaving or not, or not trusting and not risking her spiritual life and maybe most of all, her avoidance of embracing her real suffering and the courage to resolve it. As a result, we all shared the same lack of hope for her, at least at this time. As long as she was not going to embrace her interior life, we all knew that her life was not going to change very much at all. She had not noticed her soul. It's a, it hit me so hard. That was just the very start of the book. That was the first page of the book. Maddie had not embraced her interior life. And what Jesus is getting at with this Pharisee is, you Pharisees, that's the bit that I'm trying to get to. That's what I'm all about. That's where I want to go with you. I long to heal that part of you because if I heal that part of you, then all will truly be well. And it's not well with your soul. It's not well with your soul. And I want to go there. And you're so concerned with the externals. You're so concerned with getting it right on the outside that you're missing the stuff I really want to get to within. And Jesus always goes there. With Zacchaeus, the place his soul was, was his money. And that's where Jesus went. And there was great healing for Zacchaeus as he dealt with his obsession with money. For the woman at the well, it was all about relationships. That's where her soul was. That was her interior life. And no one else saw it, but Jesus saw it. And he went there and she opened herself up to him. And he was able to bring healing and transformation to her. For, the blind, for blind Bartimaeus, the blindness was his thing. The way he had reacted to it. The way other people were reacting to his blindness. The way he had carried that, that was his thing. And Jesus went there. But with this Pharisee, he can't get there. He can't get to the thing. Because the Pharisee is not concerned about that thing. He's concerned about something else all together. So what is it that the Pharisee is worried about? What is it that they don't see? Now Luke, I think, gives us a little hint. If you've got your Bibles, let's just look at the very start of this passage. So Luke 11. When Jesus had finished speaking, so this is verse 20, uh, 37, when Jesus finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So Jesus went in and reclined at the table but the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. What I want you to see there, and I think what Luke wants us to see, is a contrast. Two different ways of being in the world. See, Jesus comes into the meal, and the word that's used there is the word reclined. Jesus reclined. Anapesen is the word. Anapesen. Can we say that together? Can you say that word with me? Anapesen. That's the Greek word that's used, and it's the word, thank you, Tom, that means recline, recline. Jesus came in and recline. Miles, can I borrow you for a second? Can you come here, and can you recline on these chairs for me? I deliberately didn't ask you to do this for me. Could you just recline? Fantastic. As if you're going for a meal, Miles, you might sort of prop yourself up on a... <laughs> On an elbow. That was good, though. That was good. You happy? Thank you so much. Big round of applause for Miles. Excellent. Anna Pesen, Jesus reclines at the table. Now, this was um, something that is, I didn't know this, actually, but this is something that 
Greeks used to do, the Persians used to do, but it wasn't a Jewish thing to do at all. When they ate meals, this, this behavior wasn't normal. But as the sort of Greeks and Persians had more and more influence on the Jewish culture, this was something that the Jews began to do. When they ate together, they would recline to eat. They would lie down, lie on their elbow, and they would eat with their opposite hand. And this is what Jesus did. And one, one writer says this, he says, the Jews adopted this, listen to this, as a meaningful expression of their, their desire to lead a free, unhurried existence. I love that. The reason they would recline at a meal is because they wanted to show the world, they wanted to show themselves that that God had called them to live a free, unhurried existence, an an existence of peace, of calm, if you like. That's what Jesus brings to this meal. Now, notice Jesus, he's reclining. Notice what the Pharisee does. The Pharisee, it says, he notices. And the word there is the word ethumazen, Athumazen. And so where we get our word enthusiasm from. He notices and is amazed by what Jesus does because Jesus hasn't washed his hands. So the Pharisee's looking at Jesus reclining and he's amazed. Do you see the contrast in these two things? That word amazement is kind of like, uh, like it, it, it resonates something deep within him. It's kind of like we often use it positively in the New Testament about amazement, amazement at God. But this guy is amazed at what Jesus is doing because he hasn't washed his hands. Jesus has violated his boundaries. So on the one hand, you've got a Jesus who comes into the meal. He's been very busy talking to the crowds. He's living this busy lifestyle, doing incredible things. There's big support for what's going on, but he manages to come into the meal and he anapesens, he reclines at the table. Whereas the Pharisee is looking around. He's noticing everything. Jesus is free, unhurried at rest. And the Pharisee is observing, noticing, looking around, making judgment. You know those people at a dinner party, those hosts or hostesses? You go to a party and they're just hurried. You know, they're just rushing around. They're like making sure everybody's okay and they've got great intentions. But actually it just makes everybody else feel nervous, like they can't rest. That's what this Pharisee is like. This is a posture of the heart for the Pharisee. His soul is not healthy because he can't rest. He can't feel settled. He can't feel safe. And he can't rest because he's living this life of external boundaries. See, what's happened is his external boundaries have been violated. He lives in a world where if you wash your hands, you're okay. And if you don't wash your hands, then well, we're not sure. And so he lives, and that's the way he manufactures the world for himself. That's what makes him feel at rest, at peace. And Jesus has violated those external boundaries and he's not happy. He's not at rest. This is the type of thinking that needs something to feel safe, that needs whatever before everything will be okay. The Pharisee needs the boundaries of religion, right? He needs ritual hand washing. It's the, if these boundaries are clear, then everybody will be okay. Perhaps we can put it this way. The Pharisee is just playing the game that all of us play all the time. The game of trying to feel okay. The game of making ourselves feel safe. If we can just change the external circumstances, then my inner situation would be fixed. If I could just change the outer circumstances, then my inner situation would be fixed. And we all play it. If I had that thing, that person, that relationship, that job, that acceptance, that kudos, that respect. And often, you know, it's a game of comparison. That's why, we're look, that's why the Pharisee is looking around so much. How do I compare to him? He's done something which makes me feel uncomfortable. How am I doing on this ladder of life? I'm smarter than them. I'm purer than them. But you see, the, the comparison game is exhausting. It's tiring. And it's destructive. It's destructive. 
because I'm smarter than that person, but I'm not as beautiful as that person. I don't have the social life that they have. I have more money than them, but man, I really wish I could afford that car. See, the game the Pharisee is playing is exhausting, it's tiring. And ultimately, Jesus sees that it's deeply, deeply destructive because it never meets the real need, the need of our soul. And so Jesus asks us, how's your inner life? How is your soul? And so Jesus' frustration with the Pharisee then, the reason he has to be so strong, is that he's crying out to move into that part of him, to fix that part of him that so obviously needs fixing. And he can't get there because the Pharisee is too busy with the externals. He's just like Desmond Tutu. I love you, I care for you. Would you please, please, please listen to what I'm asking? And there's something particularly frustrating for Jesus in the way in which this Pharisee is practicing his religion. Religion, you see, can have this particularly nasty way of hiding what's really going on. Religion can make you think you're ticking all the right boxes. Religion, as we all know, can create a sense of superiority. We all know this. Who's in, who's out, where are the boundary lines? Religion can be just another way that we play the game. We fix our soul's need by being holier and more faithful and more servant-like. Remember though, as I said last week, the problem isn't religion or irreligion. Both things are unhelpful for Jesus. You know, accept tradition. Accept what you've been taught. Accept the rules. Be good or reject them. Make your own way. Choose your own adventure. Be the captain of your soul, the lord of your own destiny. Follow the law or choose your own way. Both are just ways, Jesus is saying, of meeting your soul's need. It's the same game. It's just played in a totally different way. The soul game. The problem is that our souls, the deepest parts of us, just can't rest. You clean the outside. You play the game, but inside, that's where it's really at. But Jesus, you see, Jesus is playing a whole other game. He reclines he reclines, he, anim, he, uh, he reclines, I forgot what that word is, he reclines, I'll say it again, anapessin, the anapessins, and see for some of us this is why the Sabbath is so important, because for some of us what we find and talking to people this week is, I've asked people about the Sabbath, what we find is that, you know, it's just very, very difficult to rest, it's very, very difficult to stop. And actually, maybe the thing that sort of insults the Pharisee, that causes him pain, the reason that Jesus has to challenge him is because he sees somebody at rest, at peace, and his soul can't be settled with it. And it's sometimes that when we try to rest, when we try to stop, when we take away all of those things that give us a sense of security and identity and belonging, when we take away our work, when we take away whatever it is, sometimes it's at that point we realize that deep hunger that's in our souls, Jesus and our pessins. That's what he offers us. And so this is what is on offer for us. We get what he gets. I want that for myself. I would love that for myself, to be able to truly rest, for my soul to be at peace, to be unaffected, to not worry what other people are doing, not noticing what other people are doing constantly, to be calm, confident, to walk into a room and not worry what others think of me, not playing the constant game of comparison, being satisfied in who I am, not needing that job or that role or that approval, 
not needing to achieve that list of jobs before I feel worth, just rest. Jesus wants us that for us too. And that's what he offers us. That's the inner transformation. And so what's the solution? What's the solution? If that's what's on offer, how do we get some of that? How do we get that? Well, it has to do, doesn't it, with opening ourselves up. You know, we were talking about this uh, passage there this week in staff team, and we all said the same thing. We all said it's really interesting the way Luke tells the story. Because uh, if you preached a sermon like this normally, what you'd kind of say is you'd get to this point and you'd say, you know, the message of this is, the solution is, invite Jesus into your life. Right? And what you see in, in this passage is that the Pharisee has invited Jesus into his home. And it's really interesting to me because I think that if that sentence was there, the Pharisee invited Jesus to eat with him, and then they have this really wonderful meal, and Jesus blesses him at the end of it, heals him of something, blesses him, we would say, no, that's a good sermon, right? You would say at the end of that, you'd say, there's the message, okay, invite Jesus to come and eat with you, invite Jesus into your life, spend time with Jesus and everything will be well. But it doesn't go like that, does it? this story it doesn't quite go like that this man invites Jesus in and Jesus wants to go deeper but he won't let him there's something else going on here so part of the message is invite Jesus in but it goes a little bit deeper than that I wonder if the message is the way in which the Pharisee invites Jesus in the way in which he invites Jesus in so he invites him he invites him but it's interesting how he invites him doesn't he he doesn't invite the whole of Jesus he doesn't invite all of Jesus See, the Pharisee is on this ladder of, uh, of religion. He's on this, on this ladder of obeying the law, obeying the Torah. That's his ladder. And he invites Jesus in as part of that. It's like he's got all of his kind of ducks in a row, and maybe just one more thing would be a good thing. So here's this wandering Pharisee, uh, this wandering teacher, Jesus. He's wandering around teaching the law. He'd be good as well. He'd be a nice addition to my sort of collection of things that I'm following. Maybe I'll read his book. Maybe I'll watch his film. I'll listen to I'll subscribe to his podcast. That'll be good. And so he invites Jesus in. And then when Jesus behaves like Jesus behaves, which is to move beyond the boundaries, to move beyond the sort of accepted norms, because that's what Jesus does again and again. When Jesus does that, the Pharisee does not like it. Because Jesus has overstepped his welcome, hasn't he? Jesus has gone further than the Pharisee wanted him to go. The Pharisee wanted him to come in and maybe he'd have a conversation, learn some truths, and then see you later, Jesus, thanks very much, I'll take that into my life. But Jesus wants to go further than that. So maybe the thing for us today is the way in which we invite Jesus in. Perhaps we could say it like this. For the Pharisee, Jesus was just an addition. And what Jesus wants to show him is, I can't be just an addition. I can't be in your life as just an addition. Maybe we put it this way. Maybe what the Pharisee needs to learn is that actually what this whole thing is about is about needing Jesus. It's about needing Jesus. It's not about having Jesus. It's not even about learning from Jesus. It's about needing Jesus. And I think we've seen that time and time again through these stories, Jesus and the one, as Jesus talks to these individuals. It's the ones who need him, the ones who, have got, who know that they've got nothing else to give, the ones who, have, who are at the bottom of that ladder. They haven't got a ladder to climb on. They're the ones who get it. They're the ones who get in. And Jesus actually says in Matthew's gospel, he says, you know, it's the tax collectors, it's the prostitutes, it's the sinners who get it. They're going to get in first. They're going to get the kingdom first. Why do they get it? Because they've got nothing else in their hands. They've got nothing else to give. They are the ones who are going to get in because they need me. 
See, everyone else is playing this game. And maybe Jesus will be just a nice addition to the game. Maybe Jesus will be the one who will help me win the game. Maybe Jesus will be the one who will help me get ahead in the game. Maybe he'll teach me some spiritual truths or he'll change my life in such a way that my external circumstances will change and therefore I'll get up the ladder. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You can't have me as an addition. I can't come into your life as an addition. I want to come into your life, into your inner life. And so the Pharisee doesn't need Jesus yet. He's interested, but he doesn't need him. And so maybe it starts on the place of saying, where am I most broken? Where am I most in need? And often that is a soul thing, isn't it? Often that is the deep stuff in us. Sometimes it's not, but often it is the deep stuff in us. It starts not despite our brokenness, but at the very point of our brokenness. That's where Jesus gets in. I remember being about 19 and first really understanding the concept of grace. I read uh, the, through the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, and in that book again and again, he just reminds them, you know, this whole thing is about God's love. It's about God's abundance. Get it, church? It's about God's abundance. Again and again and again. And I first, that was the first time I really understood that. But, you know, I didn't at that point, I think, see my need. I didn't see my need of him. I knew that he loved me. I knew that he was for me. But I didn't see my need of him. I'd ha- I had everything I needed. I was the good kid. Right? I grew up in a church setting. I was a good religious kid. I'd done everything that I'd been asked to do. I was faithful. I was kind. You know, I got good reports at school. I was very, very good at hiding that need behind being good. That was my story. And really, since that point on, it's been a process for me in my life, and I'm still on that journey. We always are. Still on that journey of, of realizing where is my point of need? Where have I been hiding away that need? Where have I been hiding away whatever it is that's in me who's longing for something more? What am I trying to satisfy within me? And the game goes deep, deep down, doesn't it? Ways that we use to cope in the world. I use being good as my way of coping. That got me success. That got me through life. For you, it might be a different game. They go deep for us. And constantly, Jesus is showing me ways that I play that game. So you might, like me, be good at being very religious and being very good. For you, it might be the opposite thing, self-discovery. Choose, you've chosen your own adventure. And I think the message for us today is about cleaning the inside of the cup. And maybe Jesus is saying, until you end it, until you end this game, until you try and end this strategy of coping, until you end this game of trying to get up that ladder, until you let me get to that place, that deep place, we're not going to get very far. He wants, to see, he wants to be so close to this Pharisee. He wants to be so close to him that this Pharisee might experience peace. That he might be able to recline with Jesus. 